0: When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
2: Before we begin, we want to let you know a bit more about our sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant has digestible courses and topics from the basics of scientific thinking all the way up to stuff like quantum computing.
0: In today's episode, we're revisiting the first ever image taken of a black hole, what it can tell us about Einstein's general theory of relativity. And if you want a deeper understanding of that theory, you can get it from Brilliant. The special relativity course explores the arguments that led to Einstein's epiphany that time and space are a single entity and explains how relativity functions across the universe. From space-time, cosmic rays to E equals mc squared and the twin paradox, you'll find all the answers on Brilliant.
2: So put your spare time to good use and hugely improve your critical thinking skills. Go to brilliant.org slash new and sign up for free. The first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. Again, that address is brilliant.org slash new Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your essential guide to the week's happenings in science. I'm Valerie Jimmison, Creative Director for New Scientist Events. Rowan is having a well-earned break this week, so I'm in the driving seat with pod regular Graham Lawton. Hi, Graham.
0: Hi, it's great to be hosting. Also joining us this week is New Scientist Chief Reporter Adam Vaughan. Hi, Adam. Hello. And coming up on the show, we've got an amazing story about how dinosaurs evolved from pipsqueaks to become the most successful creatures of all time.
2: We're also taking a closer look at ways to fix our plastic waste problem, how a fungus found at Chernobyl could help humans live on Mars, and the astonishing cosmic motion picture hidden in the first photograph of a black hole. But first, cast your mind back, if you can, to a time before coronavirus. It feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? But many of us were fired up about the growing problem of plastic waste. A staggering 11 million tonnes of plastic enters the oceans every year, where it does all sorts of harmful things to wildlife, the environment and even human health.
0: Yeah, it feels like that issue's taken a bit of a back seat recently, I suppose, for obvious reasons. But Adam, you've written a piece in this week's magazine about a new study that explores ways to fix it.
1: Yeah, so there was this new paper in Science recently, uh, which is really incredibly comprehensive attempt to quantify exactly how we're going to go and fix the problem because frankly before now it's been a bit of a guessing game as to what the best solutions are
2: No, i think we have to say that plastics are here to stay we they're, they're incredibly useful and we can't just get rid of them overnight can we
1: yeah that's right I'm, i mean yeah they're ubiquitous right in our economy and the things we use and so that's that's unrealistic but equally you know, standing by and just watching plastic pollution increasing um, isn't an option. You know, in 20 years' time, the amount of plastic waste is going to triple if we just carry on as we are.
2: So, tell us a bit more about this new study.
1: So, I guess the big thing that this moved us on from was when I was talking to the researchers involved is that before this, the, there were some schools that thought that actually we could largely get out of the problem with one sort of silver bullet or another. So, it might be that we could recycle our way out of the problem, or it might be that, you know, Substituting plastics for biodegradable materials, or something else, or you know, changing product design might be the answer on its own. And and this study basically tells us that that is not going to be the answer. Um. So you know, this international team they looked throughout, or they looked across the world and looked at all the options. Um. And yeah, it's not going to just be one thing. It's going to be all of them.
2: So I mean, are there any differences in uh, in how we should tackle the problem across
1: the globe? So yeah, this was one of the key sort of findings was it really depends where you are, that how you fix this problem. So, you know, where I'm speaking from in the UK, you know, and then rich countries generally, the biggest gains are gonna be from reducing demand. And that's because you know demand for plastic is forecast to grow over the next two decades if we don't do anything. So that's gonna be all about substituting for other materials, designing products differently. You know, lightweighting them and things like that, and it's going to be about you know reusable products as well. So it's going to be all that sort of stuff. And in poorer countries, it's quite different. So you know, we know that you know the sort of estimates we've seen of how much plastic waste is going into the oceans. We know that places like in particular China and Indonesia are two of the big ones. And in those countries, it's more about just frankly not very good waste management systems. So a lot of stuff ends up accidentally in the sea through sort of mismanagement. Um, so that's so it's quite different in different parts of the world. But even if we did everything, all the things, we still only cut uh the plastic pollution by about four fifths compared to sort of business of usual by twenty forty. That sounds like a lot of plastic. Sadly it is quite a big plastic mountain, uh, Graham. It's it's about they, they reckoned it was about an extra seven hundred and ten million tons of twenty forty it's a big number but there is reasons to be positive um i mean all the ideas that the researchers looked at are exist it's technologies exist they talk to people in the waste industry about what was realistic and and that's how they came to this um but some people i spoke to think that you could close that sort of final 20 you know the, the final is 78 is what you get to and the, the, some people i spoke to thought you could close the final 22 percent reduction um you know i spoke to a a UK startup called CanCan Can, and they are like working with, they're doing some trials this summer ahead of launching properly next year. They're working with curry houses, a local coffee cup scheme and so on. And their whole thing is about a sort of digital platform to basically work with reusables better. So you track the, all well, the containers go down the line better. So there are things that are coming and this, you know, things like chemical conversion that of plastics rather than like trying to mechanically sort them that are coming as well. So there are there are reasons to think we might be able to get it down to zero. I doubt it, but we'll see.
0: I mean, it's great that entrepreneurs are starting to take an interest in this to help to fix the problem, but it's a bit frustrating that we have to rely on tech startups. Are any government setting an example?
1: Well, uh, this is one case actually where the UK is doing some good stuff. So, the government in the last couple of years has already about announced a sort of suite of policies, and the the big one of those is probably the plastic tax, which is coming around. 2022 and that basically it, it really it will change the how people design products and it will ch- it will basically make a market for the for recycling more recycling more of the plastics in the uk so that's going to sort of you know make the business case for companies who do the big recycling sorting plants to build those in the uk over the next decade so it will change the, the key thing is those policies are going to change the economics of it
0: and how will that work in terms of consumers? Will we end up paying more for plastic packaging?
1: It might well be that's how it turns out because you know the there is the way the way it's going to work is there's there's a certain amount of um, producer one part of it is about producer responsibility, so that may well mean that companies are just sort of priced into doing other stuff and, and you know in using other materials, or it may be that you know if, if you do still want your stuff in plastic, it's going to cost a bit more.
2: Now, before the coronavirus crisis hit, we saw shops reducing plastic packaging, restaurants and bars were banning plastic straws. There was a lot going on and and even at a personal level, I, I found myself in the supermarket having almost like anxiety over product wrapped in plastic and always ended up going for the ones that had less. I mean, were you two doing anything to reduce your plastic consumption?
0: Yeah, I went to Finland a couple of years ago and went to the world's most advanced recycling centre, and that really changed my attitude towards plastic. They essentially recycle absolutely everything. So I've been much more rigorous about what I buy and what I put in the bin.
1: I guess for me it's been a bit like you know, it's a bit like um buying ever more expensive hi-fi's. It's kind of been a bit of a case of diminishing returns. I feel like I've <laughs> I did a lot of the easy stuff a few years ago and um, I'm now struggling to get rid of the last sort of difficult bit. Um I, I, I did look at I did look at signing up to be a customer for Loop, which is this, you know, American company that's, off, you know, will deliver reusable containers to your door and like collect them later. You know, sort of a slightly swankier version of what you've been able to do with like e-cover products in, in certain shops for years already.
2: I mean, personally, I feel that, you know, my contribution is a sort of drop in the ocean. But one of the things I wanted to ask you, Adam, is has the pandemic set us back at all um you know my local coffee shop uh doesn't take reusable cups anymore um over safety concerns and then of course we see all the the, the ppe the the gloves and masks and uh, all the plastic shielding um have we gone backwards
1: there's definitely an issue here val i mean I, you know just anecdotally you know i've, I've experienced similarly you know my, my the online supermarket that delivers to me no longer will take my plastic bags back at the end of it, you know, so similar to, you know, coffee shops and so on. But also, you know, researchers at University College London, they've calculated that face masks being dumped could create an extra 66,000 tonnes of unrecyclable plastic waste a year, and that's just in the UK. So I've also heard, you know, from environmental groups that there's been some quite cynical lobbying going on from the plastic industry to end some of the restrictions that we've seen in the last couple of years. That said, there, there on the flip side, there is a counter movement that sees sort of COVID nineteen and the crisis we're at the moment as a period of change, and where we might have actually a wider shift away from you know single use plastics. So it, I think it could it could go either way.
0: And how does how public sentiment? I mean, there was quite a lot of momentum about the plastics campaign before the pandemic. Uh, has that
1: changed? Yeah, it's sort of you might you might sort of instinctively think no one cares about plastic anymore. I think, but it's interesting. There has actually been some polling. YouGov one at the start of. April that asked people about their thoughts and um and this was during the pandemic on, pl- on plastic and that found actually for three quarters of people there's basically been no difference um fourteen percent said they're actually thinking of reducing plastic packaging more than before and only nine percent said they were thinking of reducing it less okay that seems pretty encouraging yeah that's I mean yeah there was uh, that, that is a good sign there's other there's been similar as well you know there's survey of two thousand adults by us Bank, and they were asked about what environmental switches were on their to-do list during lockdown. And over twenty-seven percent said reduce plastic waste. Uh, that was one of the larger ones behind reducing food waste at thirty-seven percent. Hey, we should do our own listener poll.
2: Oh, Grim, that's a great idea. Um, well, why don't we set one up on Twitter? Um, our handle is New Scientist Pod, and we'd love to hear your views. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, our celebration of fascinating, newsworthy organisms. What is it this week, Graham?
0: Well, this week, it's a fungus, but not Yay. any old fungus. It's a fungus that was found at the ruined Chernobyl nuclear power plant, and it's called Cladosporium spherospermum, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, I'm glad you
2: but said it... that. <laughs> <laughs> but it...
0: the, the cool thing about it is that it could be used to protect a future Mars colony, thanks to its ability to absorb radiation.
2: Mm, of all the hazards facing humans trying to set up home on Mars, exposure to cosmic radiations coming from all corners of the galaxy is a big one. So a Mars base would need thick protective layers of shielding, perhaps stainless steel, but we'd have to bring that from Earth at vast expense. Uh, or we could always build our Mars base deep underground.
0: Yeah, or we could cut it in fungus. So this mould could be a really good alternative to any of those solutions. And a pair of students in the US... Uh, they want a competition to send a petri dish of it up to the International Space Station to test it out. So how does it work? Well, some fungi are what's called extremophiles, and they thrive in high radiation environments like Chernobyl. Um, this one has a pigment called melanin that converts gamma rays into chemical energy. Believe it or not.
2: So that sounds well, so That sounds like photosynthesis, but instead of using light, it uses radiation. Is that right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's actually called radiosynthesis.
2: Ah, of course. So what happened?
0: Well, the students could only send a very small layer of this fungus to the space station, just a two millimetre layer. But they found that it still blocked 2% of the incoming radiation.
2: On the International Space Station, radiation levels are 250 times higher than they are uh, here on Earth at sea level. So 2%, that's promising, but radiation levels on Mars are, are even higher still.
0: Well, you're right. Um, and the students went on to calculate that you'd need a layer of fungus 21 centimetres thick to shield people on Mars.
2: <laughs> That's a lot of fungus. Um, but I suppose what's great about it is that it self-replicates. So you could take a few grams with you on the journey and when you get to Mars, you could, you could grow it. Um, what do we know about growing conditions on Mars? Is that even possible?
0: Well, I mean, obviously it's a tough fungus. It lives at Chernobyl, but it's not that tough. Uh, It's far too cold on Mars for this fungus to grow outdoors. But you could add it to insulated walls on a Mars habitat. uh, And you'd have to water it too, which obviously is a bit difficult on Mars, but you could use melted ice collected from the poles. And another option could be to extract that melanin pigment that the fungus uses to do its radiosynthesis. And maybe you could just dye spacesuits with it and have some protection that way.
2: I remember uh, reading a proposal a wee while ago uh, to make radiation shielding from astronauts' urine and faeces. So I definitely prefer the fungi-inspired spacesuit.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a Hobson's Choice, isn't it? Urine, faeces or fungi. But yeah, I guess I go for the fungi too. (laughs)
2: Uh, Adam and Graham, you do realise I got through that whole story without mentioning that you'd be fun guys to go to Mars with? Oh, you just did, yeah. 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 Taxi for Jimison. <laughs> Time out. I want to tell you about a live online event on Thursday the 13th of August. It's called The End of the Universe. Now we know the cosmos has a beginning but cosmologist Katie Mack is obsessed with how it will end. Will it collapse in upon itself, rip itself apart or even succumb to an inescapable expanding bubble of doom? Join Katie Mack and me as we explore the possibilities based on theory and brand new results. It's a live online event on Thursday the 13th of August and you can get an early bird discount now check out newscientist.com slash events for more details
0: so next up uh, just over a year ago you probably remember astronomers made headlines around the world with the first ever photograph of a black hole now in this week's magazine we take a look at what we're learning from that amazing image
2: It was a stunning achievement. Astronomers got radio telescopes all around the world to work in unison. And by doing that, they managed to make a radio telescope with a dish equivalent to the size of our planet. And they used it to image the black hole at the heart of a galaxy called M87. It's an elliptical galaxy 55 million light years away.
0: Yeah. And this image showed this sort of bright orange fuzzy ring surrounding a dark center And the dark centre is the black hole's event horizon where nothing that crosses it can escape. The glowing halo is hot gas being pulled in.
1: That's well worth having a look at the picture. We'll post it up on Twitter on at New Scientist Pod. So Val, what did happen next?
2: Well, we spoke to radio astronomer Michael Johnson at Harvard University, who was part of the team, and he admits that they'd been so wrapped up turning the data into a picture that they hadn't actually stopped to ask what it all meant. So once all the, the dust had settled and the, you know, the, the celebrations had died down, um, they started asking, well, what is exactly that surrounding glow? And nobody really knew its exact origins.
0: So I'm guessing we've now got an answer
2: Well, sort of. Uh, So to get answers, the team turned to simulations, as often you do in physics. And in every case, they found that the black hole's gravity is so extreme that it makes its mark on the stuff swirling around. So they couldn't actually tell these different sources apart. But it turns out to be much, much more interesting. Calculations showed that the that fuzzy orange ring is actually a series of much thinner rings of light, all nested inside each other.
0: Wow, well, so kind of like a Saturn of black holes. So you know, how do these rings form?
2: Well, an important clue comes from the work of Charles Darwin.
0: Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Charles Darwin. What on earth has he got to do with black holes? <laughs> so-
2: I thought you might wonder that. It's not that Charles Darwin. Um, it's actually his grandson. He was also called Charles and he was a physicist. So in the late 1950s, he showed that light from the surrounding universe, if it passes close to a black hole, it would swing around it before heading our way.
0: So a bit like that sort of gravitational slingshot that spacecraft use to whip around planets, right?
2: Exactly. It's the same physics of gravity. It applies to light and it applies to spacecraft. So it turns out that the region around a black hole squeezes light into a thin ring and the light doesn't have to just make one orbit of that black hole. Light that passed by the black hole much earlier in the black hole's history can make several orbits and it gets squeezed into another ring with a much smaller diameter.
0: So, okay, if I've got this right, and physics is not my strong point, as you know, Val, so each of these rings of light are like the frames of a movie showing the history
1: of the universe?
2: Yeah, from a Black hole's perspective, yeah.
1: That's pretty mind-blowing stuff. So, can I just check the, the fact that the ring is fuzzy, is that down to the resolution of the telescope? I'm wondering how can we get a... I want a better image, basically, for my desktop wallpaper.
2: Well, yeah, that is a a really good question. And one way to improve a telescope's resolution is to build a bigger dish. I mean, that's (laughs) why we see, you know, telescopes getting bigger and bigger.
0: Okay, hang on. Right. So you said at the start that the Event Horizon telescope that took the photograph originally was already the size of the planet. So how are we going to get a bigger one?
2: Yes, you're right. So the way the network of radio telescopes around the globe were joined together gave it a dish the size of the Earth. So the next step, of course, is to send a radio telescope into space and add it to that network. And a good location for that is called L2, which is a point in space one and a half million kilometres away in the opposite direction of the sun.
1: And so that gives you a dish 1.5 million kilometres across? Yeah, I mean, that's just amazing
0: because Earth's diameter is what, about 12 and kilometres? So we're talking about 1.5 million kilometres million kilometers—a telescope that big just sounds crazy.
2: Uh, well, actually, it's it's really not that far-fetched. Uh, Russia's already launched a space-based radio telescope called Spectre-R. Now, it's no longer in operation, uh, but it did loop out to 300,000 kilometres from the Earth, and an improved version called Spectre-M is due to launch to L2 in 2029. There's also a proposed US mission called the Origin Space Telescope that would also sit at L2, and if it's approved, it would launch in 2035. Now, not surprisingly, imaging the rings of light is going to be a really difficult measurement to make, even with these giant telescopes.
0: But, you know, what else could they tell us?
2: Well, much more detail about the black hole M87 for a start. So we could pin down its mass much more accurately, for example. So at the moment, we know it's six and a half billion times heavier than the sun, give or take about a, a bit billion or so. Um, and then we could also measure its spin. That would tell us how such a supermassive black hole formed. You know, did it grow from collisions with smaller black holes or by hoovering up gas from its host galaxy?
1: What about general relativity predicting black holes, Val?
2: Einstein's general theory of relativity is in great shape as far as we can measure it. That's the caveat. But physicists suspect that cracks are going to appear in general relativity if we do more stringent testing. Now, with this telescope, we could test general relativity like never before in an environment with extreme gravity and with extreme precision.
0: Well, that sounds amazing. And you can read more about the research in this week's New Scientist. It's the cover story, so be sure to check it out.
2: That's our sci-fi alert. This means we've got something in the magazine that's already been in science fiction. What is it this week, Graham?
0: This week, it's a really cool story about Mercury, as in the planet Mercury.
2: Oh, I love Mercury. Poor old Mercury. It always gets neglected, You know, perhaps because it's so close to the sun. Go on, tell me more.
0: Yeah, it probably is a bit neglected, but there has been a mission there recently, the Messenger spacecraft, and it was fitted with an imaging system called MDIS, which stands for Mercury Dual Imaging System, believe it or not. Uh, now, scientists have been studying images of the surface of Mercury taken by MDIS, and they've found some really interesting stuff out about the surface regolith. Regolith is kind of the dirt and the dust
2: on a planet's surface, basically. Okay, so they've looked at the dirt on Mercury. Um What did they find?
0: Well, obviously loads of fantastic information about the regolith, but also craters. Uh, They find some things there similar to the moon, so there are impact craters of different degrees of degradation, different degrees of erosion, I guess. And the scientists have this lovely way of describing it. They say this indicates that regolith gardening is operating to smooth out all of those features.
2: Ooh, regolith gardening. So next time I'm digging a hole outside, I'm going to say I'm doing some regolith gardening.
0: Yeah, indeed. But um, there is something that jumps out of the study uh, as well, and they find evidence of slopes and parts of the surface with these kind of chevron textures that are unlike anything we've seen on the moon. Um, And the scientists think it's the heat of the sun, and let's remember Mercury is very close to the sun and very, very hot. That heat has sort of sintered the top layer into a solid crust maybe tens of centimetres thick.
2: So um, what's the sci-fi link?
0: Well, there are loads of references to Mercury in sci-fi, but I'm going to go with 2312 by Kim Stanley Robinson. 2312 is the year the book is set in, and humans have left Earth and settled all across the solar system, including Mercury. And there's this wonderful city on the planet, which is on giant train tracks that expand as they're heated to constantly drive the entire city around, so it always stays in the twilight zone, just out of the super-hot sun. Uh, Astronomers call this region the Terminator... And that's also the name of the city. And there are also subsurface tunnels on this planet um, underneath the sintered crust. And that's our sci-fi link.
2: Next up, the greatest mystery of dinosaur evolution. And it's not what you might be thinking, Graham.
0: Yeah, that's, that's right. So for decades, we've kind of obsessed about what did for the dinosaurs at the end, 66 million years ago. And of course, today we know the answer is a giant asteroid impact case basically closed but by focusing on the extinction of the dinosaurs we've kind of neglected a more interesting biological question how did they rise to glory in the first place
2: yeah now dinosaurs dominated the planet for more than a hundred million years making them amongst the most successful groups of animals ever on the planet William, do you have a do you have a favorite dinosaur? <sighs>
0: So many. I mean, I've been obsessed with dinosaurs since I was a kid and I've never stopped loving them. But um, if I really had to choose one to spend the rest of my life with, I think it would be Ankylosaurus, which is sort of this Cretaceous tank with this massive spiny club for a tail. It's such a cool dinosaur.
2: You know, I didn't know what you were going to say and that was going to be mine. You picked my no favourite dinosaurs. <laughs> no. I'm reading all sorts of dinosaur books at the moment uh, with my four-year-old son. So the perfect age to learn, start learning about dinosaurs. Now, of course, they came in all shapes and sizes and, you know, some of them were absolutely enormous, you know, larger than the size of an aeroplane.
0: Yeah, exactly. And now the big question is how did that diversity and those enormous sizes come about? And to answer that question, you've got to kind of rewind the clock back about two hundred and fifty million years to the start of the Triassic period, when Earth was emerging from the worst mass extinction ever, and when ninety-five percent of the Earth's species were wiped out.
2: So, what were these uh, dinosaurs like back in the uh, back in the Triassic?
0: Well, right at the beginning of the Triassic, there weren't actually any dinosaurs at all, but they evolved during the early Triassic. And at the beginning, they were kind of small and rather insignificant, you know, no bigger than a horse. But alongside them was a much more successful group of reptiles called the Pseudosuchians, uh, their ancestors of modern crocodiles and alligators. But back in the Triassic, there were loads of them. They were kind of armoured ones that ate plants, they were toothless omnivores that sprinted around on their hind legs and there were these top predators that were nine metres long with teeth like steak knives.
2: Hmm, they definitely sound impressive.
0: Yeah they were and during the Triassic these Pseudosuchians were completely dominant over the dinosaurs. They had more species, they were more abundant, they had a greater variety of body shapes and anatomical features and diets.
2: Okay you've, you've got me completely gripped by this story of the uh, Pseudosuchians so what, but what happened to them?
0: So you've got to really kind of think about what the Earth was like in the Triassic. It was completely different from how it is today. All of the landmasses were joined together into a supercontinent called Pangaea. Then about 200 million years ago, Pangaea started to crack up. And what's now North America, separated from Europe, South America from Asia. And as the continents parted, this kind of unleashed geological hell, volcanoes spewed out lava, ash and massive volumes of carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide.
2: And the gases that warm the atmosphere.
0: Yeah, so you get these spells of intense global warming, followed by volcanic winters that lasted for decades. And, you know, we've just come out of the Permian mass extinction. Then there's another one. So 30% of Earth's species were killed by this cataclysm. And the Pseudosuchians just suffered really badly. They were almost wiped out.
2: So what about the dinosaurs?
0: Well, the fossil record shows that they kind of sailed through. They're almost like they were completely unaffected. And there have been lots of suggestions for why that was. And they kind of fall into two camps. One goes that the dinosaurs had some sort of advantage over the pseudosuchians. Maybe they were faster or brighter and it gave them the edge. Uh, The other is really that it was just down to luck.
2: Now, something tells me you've got another idea.
0: There is another idea doing the rounds and it has been gaining ground. And it's all to do with dinosaur lungs, which have much more in common with birds than the pseudosuchians' lungs and mammal lungs.
2: Now, I know that there have been some really impressive fossil finds, including soft tissues. You know, have we found, you know, dinosaur lungs?
0: Well, not exactly, but they do leave telltale signs in dinosaur bones. Now, in birds, the air sacs swell into the vertebrae and create these little hollows in the bones And we see this as well in dinosaurs and paleontologists have unearthed a treasure trove of new dinosaurs from the late Triassic, including the oldest known dinosaur that's bigger than an elephant. And its skeleton is riddled with holes, which kind of suggests that its lungs weren't just confined to its lungs per se, but ran through its whole body.
2: Mm, that's very weird. So, um, But that, that sounds like it, it would have given the dinosaurs you know, some, an incredible advantage.
0: It would have given them the edge. They were able to take in oxygen super efficiently and circulate air through their inners to keep cool in those periods of intense global warming.
2: Oh, that sounds perfect for, yeah, riding at a few hundred thousand years of global warming, plus all these, like, really... Bowl atmospheres.
0: Yeah, exactly. And they have these really fast metabolisms to be able to grow faster too, and their bones would have been really light. And add it all up, and the dinosaurs could evolve to be gigantic creatures, and they'd have been essentially indestructible.
2: Yeah, it definitely sounds like a winning hand of adaptations.
0: Yeah, so we've got paleontologist Steve Brassat going into all this in more detail in the magazine this week, and he ends on a kind of incredible thought experiment. You know, if that environment had been a little bit different, the age of the dinosaurs may never have come about, and we may all be obsessed now with pseudosuchians. (laughs)
2: Steve Broussati has actually spoken at New Scientist Live a couple of times and he is just the most incredible, energetic speaker. Um, And we've actually got some videos of his talks on newscientist.com and they are well worth checking out. all for this week. Thanks for joining us Adam and thank you for your brilliant hosting, Graham. Thanks to you as well for listening. Remember as a podcast listener you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout.
0: Yeah, thanks Val. So go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter POD20 at checkout for your discount. Do share your love for our show with your friends and family and spread the word. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod and you can email us at Podcast at newscientist.com. So until next time, take care and goodbye.
2: Bye.
0: Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.